Well, I'm glad that you guys are all here today, the Sunday of all Sundays, Easter Sunday. I'm going to pray, then we'll dig into the Word of God and hear the testimony from Paul. So let's pray. Well, Father, we come before you, and we are grateful to assemble together on this Easter Sunday, where we celebrate a historical event that had supernatural implications, one that verified our faith, one that confirms our hopes, one that has transformed and changed our lives. And I pray as we reflect on this reality that we will see it as reality and live in light of that reality, much like Paul did 2,000 years ago. We pray for all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it was uh, about a month ago, I was in California, and I had a chance to uh, connect with a friend of mine. About 10 years ago, when I first met him, uh, he was a committed Mormon from a very devout involved Mormon family, but he eventually deconstructed his Mormon faith and and he left it. A lawyer by trade, he did some extensive research and he concluded that the Mormon faith, the Book of Mormon, and its founder, Joseph Smith, were frauds. Uh, He told me about how the Book of Mormon borrows heavily from a fictional work at that time called A View to the Hebrews. Both books teach that a group of Hebrews left Israel, traveled to the Americas, and set up an ancient civilization, that there's cities, and the Native Americans were direct descendants from these Hebrews. In fact, in both accounts, they buried tablets or pages of the official teaching. He brought up some other concerns as well. But when he found out that there was no real archaeological support to substantiate that there were these ancient cities talked about in the Book of Mormon, that there's no DNA evidence to suggest that the Native Americans were descendants of the Hebrews, he began to question everything and he departed from the Mormon faith. And so you can understand why he is in a difficult situation because there's always this thought in the back of his mind, what if... The Bible is just an older version of the Book of Mormon, something that was made up, something that's a fraud. So as we had dinner, I asked him, do you believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead? Not in your heart, or he came back to from the dead in in some sense that is meaningful to you, but do you actually believe that the body that went into the tomb 2,000 years ago emerged from the tomb resurrected. And he said, no. He he believed that Jesus Christ is real, that he was, well, Jesus of Nazareth, I guess, not Christ, but he was uh, a real person who really was crucified, but there wasn't enough evidence for him to believe that Jesus was risen from the dead. And then he also said this, and, and he's a very honest intelligent man, but he said if he really did rise from the dead, that would change a lot of things. There would be a lot of urgency, and I'd have to take this a lot more seriously. You see, the resurrection really does force a choice. It's the most consequential historical act in human history. 
When you think about it, what we celebrate today, and really what we celebrate every Sunday, is that 2,000 years ago, there was a peasant teacher named Jesus from Nazareth who journeyed around Israel, teaching about the kingdom of God. He was then betrayed, arrested, and then he was crucified, and his lifeless body was placed into a tomb. It remained there for the rest of Friday, all of Saturday, and then at dawn on Sunday morning, the stone was removed, and that previously lifeless body came out of the tomb and appeared to people. Now, how do you prove that? Well, there was no security camera footage, right? We can't, can't necessarily rely on that. Should we see if it was, would be, uh, if science could replicate this? Well, if that's the case, that would kind of deny that it was a miracle, right? Just a scientific phenomenon. Uh, well, perhaps some non-Christians could tell us if it happened or not. Why would a non-Christian write about a resurrection that they don't believe in? Or it could be that people saw the resurrected Jesus. Now, we're going to look at a different witness today. We always talk about the disciples who saw the resurrected Jesus, the women at the tomb who saw the resurrected Jesus, but there's another person who saw the resurrected Jesus, and that man is the Apostle Paul. Now, the year is... 57 AD, Paul is making a journey to Jerusalem to pay his respects to the Jerusalem church. And while there, he goes to the temple. And while at the temple, some of his opponents who were familiar with his ministry to the Gentiles, and Jews did not like the Gentiles, accuse him of defiling the temple by bringing in a Gentile companion. So he's promptly arrested And then he's transported by the Romans to Caesarea. That was the ruling city at the time. And there he waits for two years as Roman governor Felix attempts to get a bribe to release him. Eventually, Felix is recalled by the emperor and he's replaced by Festus, who is a a new governor. And, And Paul, by this time, is convinced that he is not going to get justice. And so he makes an appeal to Caesar. As a Roman citizen, he has that right. Now, before Festus is about to send him off to Caesar, if you're going to make an imposition on Caesar's time, you need to give Caesar a good explanation. So he wants to write a report, and a sub-ruler named Agrippa is in the area. He brings him in and says, Agrippa, you need to hear what this man Paul has to say. I need your help. You're an expert in religious matters. You have a Jewish background. Perhaps you can help me write a report to Caesar. Now, I want you to note, real dates, real people in a real location. Isn't that interesting? And so Paul is on trial before Festus and Agrippa. In a book that is recorded in 60 AD, Paul writes about this experience in other letters that he has written, 
beginning with Galatians, which was written around 48 A.D. And when you look at the fact that Jesus was crucified in A.D. 33, the best reconstructions show us that Paul converted to Christianity in 35 A.D. And then he wrote about it, and we can actually read Paul's letters. And in Paul's letters, he tells us over and over again, especially in 1 Corinthians 15, that Jesus rose from the dead. And in this testimony, he explains, how does he know that? Because I saw him. I saw him. So this is what we're going to do today. We're going to listen to Paul defend the resurrection and why he believes in the resurrection to Agrippa and Festus. And as we do, we're going to see four really biblical proofs for the resurrection. Number one is the possibility proof. Number two is the personal proof. Number three is the prophetic proof. And then you have the public proof. And the implication is this. Since Jesus really rose from the dead, Everything that Jesus said and everything that Paul said is true. Therefore, the only rational choice you're left with is to live like Jesus is the risen Lord. Since Jesus rose from the dead, he's the risen Lord, and his lordship changes your life, right? Creates that sense of urgency. So let's look at the passage. Let's go to uh, Acts, if you haven't turned there already. We're going to look at the possibility proof starting in verse 1. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Now, Agrippa is actually the son of Herod, who put James, the apostle, to to death. He's a descendant of Herod the Great, who was infamous for putting all the baby boys to death in Bethlehem. This is a man who is part Jewish and actually practiced Judaism more than his forebears. He is familiar with what Paul is about to talk about. He knows the language. Starting verse 4, my manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. Agrippa, everybody knows my background. They can all testify to you that I was a faithful Jew, and not just a faithful Jew, but a Pharisee. Now, that word Pharisee is almost this dirty word, right? If you want to insult somebody, call them a Pharisee. You're just a judgmental hypocrite. And that is true. But what can be lost when we do this is is understanding just the background of a Pharisee. A Pharisee, that was a theological school of thought in contrast with the Sadducees. Those were the two rival theologies in Israel at that time. 
Now, the Sadducees, and I remember it this way, they were sad, you see, because they did not believe in the resurrection. They believed in the first five books of the Bible, what's called the Torah, and that's it. We don't see a resurrection in those books, therefore we don't believe it. In contrast, the Pharisees believed in the Old Testament as we know it, and therefore they believed in a general resurrection, kind of like what you find at the end of Daniel, that all, at the end times, everyone will be raised from the dead. And Paul says, I was a, a Pharisee. That was my theological position, Agrippa, and you know the difference. And he says, and now I stand on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I'm accused by the Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Now, do you see the argument that he's making? If God is God, and we know that he promises a general resurrection, isn't it possible that he can raise one person from the dead? I remember talking to a, a man years ago who didn't believe in the resurrection. And I asked him, well, do you believe in strict evolution, that the world came from nothing? He's like, no, I think there was a creator. Okay, so if God could create the world... Couldn't he also resurrect somebody from the dead? Do you see the argument? If God can do this major miracle of creating something out of nothing, could he raise one human being from the dead? Is there that possibility? Well, the obvious answer is, of course there is. It's not a question of could God do it, right? The question is, did God do it? And Paul explains how he knows he did. He offers personal proof. Now, Paul did not grow up in a Christian home. He was not exposed to Christianity at an early age. It wasn't part of the subculture that he grew up in. It was something that he actually bitterly opposed, as he explains in verse 9. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. I did so in Jerusalem, I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priest, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities." Now, that phrase, raging fury, he had a deep antipathy, animosity, hatred towards the subgroup of Christians. Now, what drove him to do that? Was it an irrational hatred? You know, the, the scariest enemies of Christianity are not the irrational people. It's the rational ones who have a settled conviction that Christians must die. And this is what he was thinking. You see, he was a faithful Jew who lived in Israel, and Israel is also called the promised land, right? It was a land promised by God to the descendants of Abraham. And at that time, who was ruling the promised land? It wasn't the Jews. 
It was the Roman, the Gentile scum. They were corrupting the land. And you know what? The Jews deserved it. And so what was needed was a revival. And if there was a revival and people returned to the Scriptures and worshipped the God of the Old Testament, then the Romans would leave and they would return to the Golden Age. But when you have this Messianic sect pop up and people are worshipping this crucified peasant, that will never happen because that's just a continuation of the idolatry. And so... He took this as a great threat. And there are two things that he was also trying to accomplish. Number one, there was a sense that he wanted to prove to God that even though all these other people are unfaithful, I'm faithful. Even though all these other people are committing apostasy, even though, Lord, you're going to judge them all, don't judge me, remember me. Do you remember Nehemiah? Nehemiah went back to Jerusalem, helped rebuild the walls, and there was this revival that took place. And then the revival began to fizzle. People began to intermarry, uh, go back to their old ways. And he tried to make more reforms, and he kept on saying, remember me, Lord. Remember my faithfulness. Well, that was Paul's mindset. Lord, remember me. I'm not part of this. I'm opposed to it. I'm doing everything that I can. There was that, and then there's another element. Sometimes violence was necessary. Do you remember in the book of Numbers how some of the men were fornicating with religious prostitutes and many people were dying because the Lord was obviously displeased by that? That curse was stopped when a man named Phinehas took a spear and killed a man who was with his prostitute. It's a story that doesn't make it to children's Bibles, by the way. (laughs) But he is commended for his zeal. Because if that would have continued, what would have happened to the rest of the nation? They would have died out because they provoked the wrath of God. And so there's this sense where sometimes somebody must die to protect the rest of us. If we don't wipe this out... There'll be further wrath and more death. And so with that kind of zeal, Paul would go from house to house. He would interrogate, who do you think Jesus is? Do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? And when the answer was yes, all right, take him away. He'd separate husbands from their wives, mothers from their children. He would infiltrate church services, break it up, have them haul away. And when they're on trial... Asking the question, shall we execute this person? Paul, also known as Saul, would say, of course. That's what we're here for. He wanted to do everything he could to stop Christianity. And this led him to go to an ancient city called Damascus, verse 12. And in in this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. Paul made his way to an ancient city, which was at the crossroads of the empire. And there was a real concern here. If Christianity took hold in this city, it would go viral and spread throughout the empire. True patriot and a committed Jew, Paul had to act and stop before it was too late. This was the gates of Vienna for Christianity. 
And Paul was there to make sure the right side won. But something happened on that road. At midday, O king, verse 13, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we, plural, had fallen to the ground. He sees a bright light. His traveling companions see it too. They all fall to the ground. In verse 14, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, that's Paul's other name, why are you persecuting me? As Saul was attacking the church, he was actually attacking someone else. He was attacking somebody else's body. Verse 14, is it hard for you to kick against the goads? You know what a goad is? It's a sharp, pointed rod. If you're driving cattle, you get behind them and you'd poke and poke and poke to drive them forward. But if somebody resists or does something idiotic, they'd kick against it and basically inflict harm on themselves. Saul, you've got a destiny that you are fighting against. Why are you kicking against the goads? And I said, who are you, Lord? Wouldn't you want to know? (laughs) Wouldn't you want to know? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. I am Jesus when you are persecuting. Now, Paul, to this point, he is driven with one cause. Do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Yes, you're gone. Do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? It's over. Take him away, boys. But now he's realizing that he's actually wrong about Jesus. Instead of operating under the pretext that Jesus didn't actually rose from the dead, Jesus is before him saying, I'm the one who you're persecuting. I am here. I am Jesus. And at that point, there is a theological shift, right? Number one, Jesus rose from the dead. Those Christians were right and he was wrong. Number two, as someone who rose from the dead, he is the Messiah. He is the Lord And one of the obvious implications of Jesus being Lord is this. You do what he says. Isn't that right? Part of the implications of Jesus being Lord, Jesus being the Christ, which is not his last name, it's a title, is you do what he says. And so Jesus tells him to do something. Verse 16, but rise and stand upon your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. He is to go to the Gentiles. Gentiles were not the friend of the Jews. They were the outsiders. They were the godless scum. But he is to go there to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Paul is to go liberate Gentiles from the power of Satan. Right? There's two kingdoms. You either serve Satan or you serve the Lord. You got to serve somebody. 
And so he is to proclaim the gospel that Jesus is risen so that their sins can be forgiven, so that they can be liberated from the power of sin, so that they can live obediently to God through a life of faith. Verse 19. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to this heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Paul is calling on them to have faith in the Lord Jesus, to turn from their sins, and to live a life of faith. And he was wildly successful because many did, to the point where Jews who were like him previously saw him as a threat and tried to kill him. Verse 21, for this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. See, Paul is a man of conviction. When he was convinced that this group of Christians was a threat to the nation and an offense to God, he acted like it, right? But then when he became convinced that Jesus rose from the dead, that he is Lord, he acted like it. He acted on his theology. Now, when you look at this, some might object that he did not actually see the risen Jesus. Uh, perhaps he saw a vision. Well, there's a couple options here. It could be that Paul just made this up. He made it up, told everyone that this is what happened, and what did he get out of it? Lots of pain and persecution. Further, he would be a first-class hypocrite because he disdains lying and denounces lying in all his letters. Do you think he made it up? Well, maybe Paul didn't make it up. He, he just had an overheated imagination. He hallucinated. Maybe he had heat stroke or maybe a psychotic episode. Now, here's the problem with that. Was Paul alone on the road to Damascus? He wasn't. Yeah, exactly. No, he wasn't. Others fell to the ground with him. Now, Jesus spoke in Aramaic to Paul at the time, and it could be that these other people, they heard the voice but did not understand that language, and so they didn't know what was being said. That was just for Paul. But do you know what they did afterwards? They went to a man named Ananias because he was blind, and Ananias received him. And so Ananias receives a blind Paul who is guided there by these witnesses who saw this event. So there's names, there's people, there's places. This was more than a hallucination. Some people might say, well, maybe this is a fictional account that Paul didn't make this up. Luke made it up. And yet Paul talks about this experience elsewhere in some of his other letters. Galatians 1.12, For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ, by Jesus Christ. Paul says, I saw Jesus. It's in Luke. It's in the other letters. He saw Jesus. That's his personal proof. And then he makes it clear that this shouldn't really be a surprise to you, Agrippa, as he offers prophetic proof. Verse 22. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. That the Christ must suffer 
and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Paul understood that the Scriptures pointed to this reality. Now, he didn't know it at the time, but he had a course correction. You know, one of the other great Easter passages is found in Luke 24, where some disciples are walking on the road to Emmaus. And they're having this debate, trying to make sense of all of these rumors that that Jesus rose from the dead. And they encounter a stranger. And they bring him into the discussion. And this is what the stranger tells them in Luke 24, 25 through 27. Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, do you know who this interpreter was? The safest answer in church is what? Jesus. That's right. It was Jesus. Jesus said, if you look at the scriptures, starting with Moses through the prophets, they all point to this reality. Well, where does it point to that? Famously in Isaiah 53, 3 through 6, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, and yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. What does that bring to mind? Crucifixion. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. We Like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all. There's a crucifixion, right? That the Christ, the Christ must suffer, die. What about being raised? Skip ahead to verse 10. Yet it was a will of God to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offering. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper his hand. Death is not the end of the suffering servant. There's many other passages like this, but Paul points out, King Agrippa, if you look at the Scripture to see to it yourself, they all forecast that this event took place. So the Scriptures look forward to it, and Paul, through his experience, is able to look back to it. And then he, he points to the public proof in verse 24. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul! You are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Now, I have my own unique translation to this. It's, Paul, you are five cans short of a six-pack. I'm not sure what that means. But I think it means you're crazy. You're not the sharpest knife in the drawer, Paul. You're nuts. You read too many books. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. Now hear me out. If you actually see the risen Jesus Christ, and he tells you to get up, 
and preach the gospel to the nations. But before he does that, he's going to blind you. And you must see a man named Ananias, and he will heal you and you'll receive your sight. It only makes sense that you actually do what he tells you to do, right? That's a rational decision. Paul is not crazy. All of this aligns with, with what the scriptures teach. And so after Festus calls him a lunatic, Paul turns to Agrippa, verse 26. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. See, Agrippa was five years old when the crucifixion happened. His father was the one who killed one of Jesus' disciples. Even though he grew up in Rome, he was very familiar with many of the controversies that were going on. None of this was done in a corner. Christianity was not some sort of secret society. There was a rising belief in the resurrection in Israel at the time to the point where people like Paul and Paul's enemies were opposing it. None of this was done in a corner. Agrippa, you know, you know that all this stuff is out there. There's names, people, places. You know that this was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, verse 27, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. Notice what Paul is doing now. He's trying to close the sale. Agrippa, I'm not just trying to defend myself. I'm talking to you and your heart right now. You know the prophets. You've read these scriptures. You know it's true. And you can almost see King Agrippa going, whoa, 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 when did this get personal? And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, you will persuade me to be a Christian? I, I'm, I'm not quite there, Paul. You got to do a lot more work than this. And Paul said, whether short or long, I would that God, not only you, but also all who hear me to this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. You know what made Paul so persuasive? He was persuaded. If you are truly persuaded of this reality, right? If you're truly persuaded that the man standing in front of you has less power than the one who appeared to you on the road to Damascus, then of course you're going to talk to him. And when when Paul gets the chance, he will talk to the most powerful man on earth, Nero. One of the reasons why he was so persuasive was because he was so persuaded. Verse 30, then the king rose, and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Now notice that Agrippa doesn't agree with Festus that this man is crazy. That's telling, isn't it? He said, this guy makes sense. In fact, he should probably be let free, but he appealed to Caesar, and so that's where he needs to go. It's interesting that he's not written off. Paul persuasively tells this audience, I know Jesus rose from the dead. I saw him. Now, in this day and age, as Christianity is celebrated culturally, you have a lot of people who want to give honor to Christianity even though they don't embrace it. So they'll say, it's important that you believe in the resurrection. 
it's important that I believe in the resurrection. But if you were to push them and say, do you believe in an actual resurrection? They'll say, I don't know about that. Do you know what I'm saying? The actual resurrection is critical to everything we believe. Paul believed he saw Jesus, and he acted on it. He bet his life on it. So if there was no resurrection, and Paul's telling everyone there is a resurrection, not just a spiritual resurrection, but, a, but an actual physical one. If you don't believe me, read 1 Corinthians 15. It's all there. If he's telling everyone these things when he knows it's not true, then you would have to conclude that Paul is a liar. Paul is a liar. All his epistles that he's writing that we have, he's telling lies. Paul is self-conscious about this when he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 14 through 15, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. Did you hear that? If Jesus wasn't raised, don't believe a thing that I said. Therefore, if Christ has not been raised and Paul is a liar, then this Bible, a portion of it, especially the New Testament, is written by a liar. And if it's written by a liar, then you don't have to do what the Bible says. In fact, you don't have to embrace anything about the Bible. The Bible is just an inspirational work with some ancient ethics. That's all it is. You don't have to do it. But you don't get any comfort from the Bible as well. The Bible's authority to give you comfort is on the same level as the sympathy section in a Hallmark store. Whatever makes you feel good. Will you see your loved one again? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe they became an angel. Maybe they're at the end of the rainbow. I don't know. Nobody knows. There's no authority to guide you and no authority to comfort you if Jesus was not raised from the dead. But if you flip that around and Jesus rose from the dead and Paul saw him, then Paul is telling the truth. And a significant portion of the New Testament, all of Paul's letters, testify to this truth. If Jesus can be raised from the dead, then I think God could also write revelation for us to read and understand him. Therefore, you have to do what Jesus says because Jesus is Lord and he rose from the dead. But fourthly, you can receive the comfort that the Bible offers because Jesus rose from the dead. Now, Easter is a celebration of a resurrection, but you can't have a resurrection without what? Without death. And it's a, it's a day when we celebrate a resurrection of something that happened 2,000 years ago, but it's also a day when we anticipate a resurrection in the future. Many of you have loved ones that you've lost. You might have someone who you're afraid you might lose. Death will come for us all at some point unless the Lord comes back first. And if you were to ask people, you know, how, how did your loved one die? I mean, there's different answers, right? Car accident, cancer, heart attack. But there's another question. Why did they die? 
And you can talk about, well, this virus did this, or, you know, a drunk driver did this. That's why they died. But there's another answer even more basic than that. It's found in Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death. The reason why people die is because of sin. Sin merits a punishment, and that punishment is death. If you go back to first three books of the Bible in Genesis, not three chapters of the Bible in Genesis, you, you see that when God created the, the world, it was created what? Good. And there, was, and there was a rule that he gave Adam and Eve. Genesis 2, 16 through 17, the Lord God commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden you may freely eat. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. Now they ate. And then death happened. But death happened in stages. And this is really fascinating. See, death has an idea of separation. And and, and hear me out here. Remember when Adam and Eve, they ate, they noticed something about each other you know you're naked and I'm naked and they hid from each other. They heard God walking through the garden and and what did they do? They hid from him. God discovers them. He confronts them, pronounces that this world is cursed because of their sin. They'll have an adversarial relationship with each other and with the animal kingdom and with him. And then he, he banishes them from the garden so they can't eat from the tree of life lest they live forever. And one day, they will physically die. Remember how God breathed life into Adam? Well, that breath of life will come out of Adam upon death. That's the final separation in this life. And in a rebellious state, there will be what's called a second death which is a lake of fire where there's an eternal separation from God. Death is all about separating. It's it's tearing asunder what God had joined together. The soul and the body were meant to be together forever. That's why a resurrection is such a powerful miracle. But Adam and Eve did not die right away, did they? God covered their shame with animal skins. And to get the skin off an animal, what do you have to do to the animal first? You have to kill it. That was the death. That death stayed the execution. And as we go throughout biblical history, we always see a a sacrificial system where they'd have atonement and sin offerings, where they would tell the nation of Israel that, that this goat over here or this lamb over here or this bull, this should be you. But God will delay judgment because he will accept this offering in your place. But here's the problem with that. In Hebrews 10, 4, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. A bull or a goat is not a substitute for a human. So how does God resolve this issue? Now, I'm operating on the baseline assumption that we have all sinned here. Has anyone here not sinned? Okay. I was prepared to call you a liar. Okay, yeah, all of us have sinned. I mean, we know it, right? And the weight of sin is death, and we have this death sentence hanging over us, and these bulls can't deal with our sin. 
So either we suffer for our sin and we get what we deserve, but God came up with another way. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus came to earth. He lived the perfect life that you should have lived, and then He died the death you should have died. You know, on the cross that we celebrate, I've already read this passage, but it bears repeating, Isaiah 53, 4-5. Surely He has borne, this is talking about Jesus here, He has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows, and we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted, right? On the cross as He hung there. Our griefs, our sins were placed upon Him. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. See, on the cross, the wrath of God, the death we deserved, was experienced by Jesus, even though he never deserved it, so that he could be a substitute for us. That's why it says, but God shows his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5.8. And if Jesus was still dead, he'd still be paying for the sin, right? But because he raised from the dead, he was raised from the dead, it's all finished. And those who place their faith in Jesus Christ and really trust in him can have eternal life forever. We may die, but we will rise again. And this is the, the ultimate comfort, right? Because death is the most terrible thing that can happen to humanity. It tears apart families. It leaves us in bondage. Death is a terrible thing. And if, you're, if you have no hope, if you believe that death is it, that's it, there's no comfort that you have. I can just tell you that this person became an angel or this person did this, but there's no basis for that. Paul, who saw Jesus... He comforts people who lost loved ones in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 14. He says, But I do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, another word for death, that you may not grieve as those who do not have hope. I've done many funerals for people, and there's nothing more tragic than seeing someone grieve without hope. Grief is not wrong. But Paul says there's a limit to your grief. You're not to grieve like the unbelievers who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Paul says, because we know Jesus died and, most importantly, rose again, those who have fallen asleep in Christ Jesus you're going to see them again. Well, how do you know, Paul? How can you make that kind of audacious claim that my husband will be seen again, that my child will be seen again, that my father will be seen again, that I'll see my mother again, I'll see my friend again? How do you know we're going to see any of them again, Paul? Who are you to say that? Well, Jesus rose from the dead. Well, how do you know that, Paul? I saw him. I saw him. That's the hope we have this Easter, right? It's true because Paul can say, I saw him. 
Let's pray. Well, Father, we are just so thankful for the testimony of Paul. We trust you. We trust him. We thank you for his testimony that he saw your son on the road to Damascus. And Lord, I pray for anyone here who has not embraced that truth with conviction. Perhaps uh, there's a certain degree of cynicism or unbelief. I pray that you will do a work in their hearts right now, that they will question their own unbelief, they'll question their doubts, they'll question their convictions, and they'll consider the possibility that the resurrection really happened that their mind won't be clouded with well, their own desire to live their life their own way, that they will trust that you, who love them enough to send your son to die for them, will freely give them all things, and that the invitation to follow Jesus is not an invitation to pain and misery, but joy and hope even in the midst of suffering. There's no accident that they're here today. I pray that you'll minister to them in Jesus' name. Amen.